welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Our passage today it, uh, it is in Acts chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 29 where we left off uh, three weeks ago. Um, and this serves as Peter's declaration. It's, it's immediately after he has assured that Jesus Christ had died, but that God had raised him up again, a direct fulfillment of scriptural prophecy. Peter quoted Psalm 16 in our previous passage, uh, where King David assures that, that God would not allow his body to physically decay. In, in other words, verse 24, it's impossible for death to hold him in its power. Then next in today's passage... Peter begins to emphatically insist that David has not clearly not been referring to himself in Psalm 16 and verse 10. Why? Well, Peter tells us why. Uh, look with me at verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has for poured forth this what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven but David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter shows that David reveals the Lord said to my Lord, David's Lord, David says, not me, sit at my right hand. Well, for those of us present who, who really enjoy the nitty-gritty of studying theology, uh, you will already likely recognize that there are enormous implications at Pentecost concerning two promises uh, two important promises that God made to Israel. Number one, the Davidic covenant. And number two, the new covenant. 
And the question that must be pursued with honesty is this. Are they fulfilled in this passage? And consequently, is the promised Messiah reigning today as our priest and king? Most theological circles, this this would include ours, agree that Christ is going to reign on earth after he returns at some point in the future. The members of Port St. Lucie Bible Church surely believe this. Our constitution, our church constitution states that uh, Christ will, quote, return for his redeemed, followed by his coming in glory to judge the the rebellious and to establish his millennial reign. So, So we will be caught up We will be raptured and rescued before God's judgment. And thus we believe Christ's judgment of the rebellious occurs at the time of his coming and before his his reign begins on earth. Uh, From that point forward, Christ's throne and his kingdom will be both physically and visibly on earth. That, that is a position often credited to premillennial theology uh, that Christ is going to reign and he is going to, to return and physically rule on earth. Uh, yet it is also my understanding that most, maybe even all, genuine Christians throughout church history have believed in some manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth after he returns. The Gospel Coalition even said that this is 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 historic Christianity. But you may be surprised to learn that not all believe that Christ is literally reigning and seated on his throne today. Um, I used to be told that from certain professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. But there is there's an increasing number of Dallas professors, uh, Daryl Bach would be notable among them, uh, who insist Christ surely is already reigning from his Davidic throne. And part of that declaration comes uh, in the presence of our passage today. Uh, I believe it is fundamental to this passage uh, where Peter is explaining to Israel the capacity in which Christ reigns. Folks, this becomes critical. It becomes critical to concerning who and how we worship. Do you, do you mean the words when you sing, Our God reigns, our God reigns, even if I didn't sing them very well? Do you believe that? Or, behold our God, seated on his throne, come let us adore him. Behold our God, nothing can compare, come let us adore him. What mental image of our king do you worship when you sing that song? What do you see? You know, sometimes preaching serves, as, serves as, as the mechanism to refining our minds as we worship. So this is very, very practical. 
what is the mental picture of our Savior, the Messiah, uh, the Christ and King whom you worship? Mental images serve, folks, as a projection of our internal faith. What is the image you see? This is very important to refine and sharpen, uh, sharpen our minds and our spirits with God's Word. Uh, you, you, some of you who are a little older, like me, maybe middle-aged, probably remember uh, the televisions from the 70s, right? They had a dial on the side. Not just the tuner, they had the, the contrast as well. You remember? Sometimes the image wasn't very good. And, and it get, gets snowy in there, and you think you're seeing the image correctly, and like, well, what is that? And, and you try to dial that knob and, and tune it in for the image, and, and it's not working, so you get your little brother, Charlie, and you say, Charlie, go over there and hold on to that antenna, right, right there over by the TV. Oh, that's it. Charlie, stay right there. Yeah. Don't move. He'll say, but I can't see the front of the TV. That's all right. You just stand right there. Flash Gordon is doing his stuff. Yeah. You had to tune in the image. And since Jesus is not yet physically in our presence, and because Christians worship God by faith and not by sight... Peter tunes in the theological picture for Israel in this passage. Therefore, beginning in verse 29, he he assures that the person or or the object of their salvation is clearly not David. David didn't provide salvation. Not in the spiritual sense. He, He definitely delivered them from some enemies. But he's not the object of Israel's worship. And Peter says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. They could verify that in that day. It's right over there. Take tours of it. No, I probably didn't do that. But in other words, Peter assures We are not to spiritualize our interpretation of Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10. It's because when David declares God will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay, um, David's body most assuredly experienced decay. So so in verse 10 of that Psalm 16, uh, David is not speaking of himself or or suggesting that his hope is, is... Merely in a spiritual resurrection. A spiritual afterlife. You know, David's body's there in the tomb, but he was speaking here of, a, of an afterlife uh, as his hope in the psalm. Uh, no, that's not it. Though many professing Christians today do believe that we are nothing more than a disembodied spirit after we die. They think we you know, like float around on a cloud, got some translucent wings kind of flutter about. Uh, some think we become angels. That, that, that doesn't happen. No, we're a different created order. We don't become angels after we die. No, rather, David's specific reference to the Holy One. 
that he will not experience bodily decay ought to spare us from such a miscalculation. David's body, says Peter, it's still in the tomb. So he must have been speaking of somebody else. And indeed, we saw in our scripture reading earlier, that was from 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read how, how David recognized God was well, he's speaking of a distant future. When he, David wrote, it was a, a thousand years in the future before Christ would be born. Still, nonetheless, David knew, just as stated in Acts chapter 2 and verse 30, that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Theologians refer to this as the Davidic covenant. The Davidic promise, uh, the assurance that an eternal king uh, would serve as God's king, his, his promise to both the nation of Israel and to David. It's also referenced in Psalm 89 where God reminds Israel, quote, I've made a covenant with my chosen. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Perpetual thing. And then in Psalm 132, this is verse 11, quote, The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. It will be a physical descendant of David. Israel and David both celebrated the fact that God had promised there would be an eternal king, that God would seat an eternal king as Israel's ruler. And in regards to raising up physical descendant, a physical descendant to seat on David's throne, what event was David himself expecting when he uttered these words? This is important. Your Holy One will not suffer decay, but, what? Will be seated on my throne forever. Verse 31, look at it. Reveals that David was looking ahead. We knew that, right? David was looking ahead. Speaking of the resurrection of Jesus, whom God raised up, of which, says Peter, we apostles, we serve as first-hand witnesses to this. The resurrection, and I would add the ascension, has just recently occurred within the last few days, verifies fulfillment. Consequently then, the Apostle Paul also states that, that God displayed the surpassing greatness of His power. This is Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20. Quote, when? When? We ask when. When did God display the surpassing greatness of His power? We answer Ephesians 1, verse 20, quote, When He raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul continues, and he put all things in subjection under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church. When? Well, not only in this age, but also the age to come. When? Well, not only in the age to come, but also in this age. This illustrates a, a heavenly reign on a heavenly throne. And it is after his resurrection when Christ becomes seated, quote, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Hebrews 1 verse 8 puts it this way, But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Oh, so, so this throne is the perpetual throne. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom, the writer of Hebrews says. And in Hebrews 4.14, quote, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, we get verse 16. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's Jesus' eternal throne, forever and ever. Just one more. Hebrews 8, verse 1. This is the same writer to the ethnic Jews, or we call it call the epistle, sometimes refer to the epistle, to the Hebrews. It says this, quote, Now the main point, what? Now the main point, the writer says, in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesties of the majesty in the heavens. I am I am a bit surprised that this arises as a question, but but it does so so it needs to be addressed. Which throne does Christ ascend to? Well, it's undoubtedly the highest throne. It's above all rule and power and authority which Christ is seated at. And it's at the right hand of God, we are told. Uh, Peter says to Israel, this is what just happened, folks. And again, verse 30, God has fulfilled to David the oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Folks, this is the same throne that Hebrews 1.8 describes for us that Christ reigns from forever and ever. You will reign forever. There's no other throne. And it is because Christ is seated, verse 33, that uh, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. That, that is Peter's reference back to earlier in the chapter, uh, the reference to speaking spontaneously in, in foreign languages or tongues. It's what they both see and hear. The Holy Spirit which has been poured out has been sent from Christ's throne. Quote, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It, it, is, it is Christ who has ascended to God's throne. 
to rule in David's capacity as Israel's king. How else could Israel understand this, this uh, proclamation by Peter? What, what else would Israel understand it to be? And the following becomes a point that's both fascinating and yet needs to be clarified. You know, some think that they stumble into thinking that, you know, Christ isn't seated on his throne. But but it's only he's seated off to the right hand of God. It's a little lesser position over here, a little lesser power, a little lesser authority, a little lesser capacity than God. Folks, a lot of cults get a lot of mileage out of that. And by distorting this passage, uh, they, they distort the gospel of someone having to come from outside of us and beyond us in order to save us. Therefore, we need to stretch our understanding just a bit. It continues to be proclaimed, and this, this is error, it continues to be proclaimed that Christ remains less than God. That he's rather only a man, a very spiritual, religious man, who has a seat close to God. You know, God has the big throne over here, uh, off to the side, you know, a little lower. Jesus gets, well, it's like a preferred chair. Got a nice embroidered cushion on it, maybe. You know, he kind of sits over here off to the side a little bit. Not God's throne. Perhaps they would say even someday that he might get a throne on earth uh, some point in the future. But Christ isn't truly God seated on God's throne. Folks, that, that assertion is patently inaccurate. Instead, after sin's atonement and the resurrection of his son, the Father has welcomed Jesus to rejoin him on God's throne. Jesus is seated as God and with God upon heaven's throne. And Jesus sits at God's elevated right hand, including uh, indicating that Jesus enjoys, or rather has been exalted to, the position of highest privilege on the throne of God, the highest authority at the right hand. He is not seated in second place, folks. Be assured of this. Jesus is reigning on His throne with God and as God. Again, Ephesians 1 verse 20, At God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all power and rule and dominion and authority. That's it. That's the top right there. There exists no higher throne. Uh, Jesus isn't waiting on a job promotion. All right. After his ascension, he's already ruling again over all creation. And when Christ returns to earth, he will be seated and ruling from this very same divine throne. Uh, he won't be accepting any demotion of any kind uh, to some old human throne, you know, Maybe the angels are going to dust off, you know, clean it off a little bit and drag it out of David's attic or something. Let's get that out again. Let's clean that up and put Jesus back on that one. Um, the oath that God swore 
that the Messiah would be seated on David's throne. It merely indicates, folks, that Jesus, as David's physical descendant, his own seed, is ruling from David's position of authority as sovereign king over Israel. It has nothing to do with saving that same physical chair. You know, we're going to bring it out again and dust it off. No, it's that Christ is reigning as sovereign ruler. That's the Davidic throne. Jesus as king over Israel is already ruling as David's heir and has taken David's seat as sovereign ruler. That's the position David had in Israel. Sovereign ruler. It's not talking about a wooden chair or a marble chair or any type of chair. It's a position of ruling. And Jesus is, furthermore, also ruling today from the throne of divinity, uh, a place where a mere man, a mere man, someone like David, never, ha- never became fit to sit. That's not the throne we're talking about. We're talking about God's throne. By the way, this is also the same divine throne. It's pictured in Isaiah 6, where the Lord himself is exalted. He, he's high and lifted up. We sing about that as well. The same throne from which God the Father and God the Son ruled, listen to this, when the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters at the moment of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Same throne. God only has one throne. And it's not as if the Eternal Son had not shared this throne with the Eternal Father from eternity past. So you ask, this is the question you have. If the second member of the Trinitarian Godhead is already, was already seated on the throne, this throne from eternity past, even before the birth of baby Jesus... What's the big deal then? Apparently, just Jesus just went back and, and assumed his same previous position that he had before? Is that it? Oh, no. No, that is not it. We see there has been a major development. Since that night in Bethlehem, God's Son has assumed a full humanity. Not only fully divine, now he's also fully human. Previously, before the incarnation, the eternal son was not human flesh. But, but only through the incarnation, God became flesh and he dwelt among us. Uh, and through the Holy Spirit conceiving the child within the womb of the virgin, that's Mary, a true physical descendant of David, by the way. Mary was. So Jesus was. Through the Holy Spirit conceiving this child, there has come a true heir to fulfill God's oath to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and rule forever. And it's because, our passage said, Jesus was resurrected. Ever since sin's atonement on the cross at Calvary, the Son 
reigns not only as creator of the universe, but after his resurrection, Christ also now reigns as redeemer of humanity. Because he is both the son of God and the son of man. The core promise of a coming heir to David's throne was not simply that Israel would have a continuous king like, like other nations that surrounded them. God really, he tells us, didn't really care that much about that. When Israel wanted a king like other nations, God's like, you've rejected me. You, you want to be like everyone else. It isn't about just having a, a king who sits on a throne over Israel. No, no, it's much, much more than that. God's promise of the Davidic covenant was that this particular king, this one named Jesus, you might call his name Emmanuel, you know, God with us, this particular descendant, what was peculiar about him is that David knew the Messiah would come and that the Messiah would die, but that he would also be raised to reign over a sinful and damned humanity. That is something that David could never do. You ask, well, what did David know? I was just thinking as I was sitting there about uh, Psalm 22. It's a little abridged description of what Jesus knew, or David knew about Jesus. Abridged mean I'm pulling out parts here, so you can read the entire thing later when there's more time. This is what David knew. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' words on the cross. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Later on, be not far from me, for trouble is near. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments amongst them, and for my clothing they cast lots. A little later, towards the end of the psalm, David writes, The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness. What did David know? He knew a lot. He knew a lot. Um, listen to David back in verse 26. 
Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David's joy was that Christ would die, then he would be resurrected, and he would be fit to be ruler over all Israel. David said, that, that not me. I could never do that. Folks, is, is your tuner getting dialed in a little bit? The picture a little crisper of the Christ you worship? Is it coming clearer? Folks, Jesus is what all true believing Israel, not nominal Israel. They weren't all Israel. All true believing Israel had been waiting for when he was first born that first Christmas. This is what they were waiting for. In Matthew 1 verse 20, an angel of the, of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not be, I mean, descendant of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what they're waiting for. And while scanning the birth narratives that are recorded in Matthew and Luke, uh, whether the ancient prophecies arose from Zacharias or Anna or Simeon, those who prophesied around the time of Jesus' birth or near it, uh, Virgin Mary, her Magnificat, they were always looking for the same promise in the same child that he would provide redemption of sins and that thereby the oath through the resurrection to David the oath would be fulfilled and Christ is seated on his throne today from where Christ reigns folks our Christ reigns I believe those of you who've been tracking I believe there should be amongst Christians regret as to how much how there has arisen so much division in our, in our Lord's bride, the church, over whether Christ is reigning now spiritually during the church age and whether Christ is going to reign in the future physically on earth in a future age when in fact both are true and from his throne, the Davidic heir, Christ, is reigning spiritually today by the Holy Spirit with great invisible power while achieving his plan of redemption by the Spirit. And Christ will reign in the future physically on earth with great visible power. And whether the... The king reigns now or later. It, it's not a case of either or, but of both and. 
and therefore the subject shouldn't be as divisive as it has been the last 150 years or so. The fact is, our Christ reigns. One final reflection on this passage needs to provide a little bit of clarity as to uh, exactly who these two promises are, uh, these two promises at Pentecost are fulfilled to. Bring a little more clarity here. Um, there is the promise that God has fulfilled his oath to seat one of his descendants on David's throne. Uh, there's another promise by the Father to send the Holy Spirit, which is evidenced at Pentecost, uh, showing King Jesus from his throne has poured out the Spirit. That has happened. Um, the latter promise, this latter promise of the Holy Spirit being granted to Israel, it was prophesied through Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to, avoid, uh, to observe my ordinances. That's a pouring out of the spirit. Uh, this is the same promise given through Joel, whom Peter referenced earlier on this day of Pentecost, earlier in our chapter, uh, preaching earlier uh, in verse 16, you could look there, and he says that, uh, of Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, meaning the diversity of all mankind, not just on Israel anymore, but Israel plus all, uh, all mankind. And just as we learned several weeks ago, um, this includes people from every nation. Sounds like Psalm 22. Um. Pentecost, folks, is the giving of the Holy Spirit, which we've heard three times since starting Acts 1, was promised by the Father, and it was announced by Christ at the Lord's Supper through the sharing of the bread and the cup. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood at the Last Supper. And also at the same supper, Jesus told his disciples, you know, I'll be, I'll be leaving shortly. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. I will be leaving, but I'll be sending another helper. That's going to be the Holy Spirit that's going to come to you. He's going to teach you all things. He's going to convict the world of sin and of my righteousness, Christ said, etc., etc., the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is today. No one would argue with that. So the Holy Spirit must have come. And according to Peter... This is where the rubber meets the road. According to Peter, according to Scripture, Pentecost marks the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and serves as divine evidence that God has initiated the new covenant. So, who in context are these recipients of the new covenant? In verse 36, Peter says this unequivocally. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The audience is 
all the house of Israel. And back in verse 14, when he started his speaking, Peter addresses the same as men of Judea. Therefore, when Jeremiah 31, 31 states, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people who has received the new covenant at Pentecost. It is Israel. Hebrews 10 verse 16 assures us that the promise of the new covenant was fulfilled at Pentecost. And this preaching of Peter assures that the new covenant is fulfilled to all the house of Israel for certain. This is why Romans 1 verse 16 says, uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first. And then later on also the Greek. It's a statement of chronology, folks, not of ethnic superiority. We don't have that in the church. No such thing as an ethnic superiority in the church. The church at Pentecost, folks, was not a Gentile church. It is exclusively a Hebrew church. And therefore, the promise of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant is fulfilled for the house of Israel. In fact, the apostles, get this, the apostles were, were so certain, they, they were so confident that Christianity remained an exclusively Jewish religion move, religious movement, they were so confident of this, they became genuinely astonished surprisingly resistant years later in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius becomes the first Gentile convert. In fact, in chapter 11, when Peter first reports this news to the, to the people uh, that, that meant something in Jerusalem, uh, he felt a need to defend his actions for preaching to the Gentiles. Peter says, well, the Holy Spirit fell on them, the Gentiles, just as it did upon us, the Jews, at the beginning. Peter's referring back to Pentecost. Peter says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, says Peter, if God gave to them, the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave us also, the Jews... After believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in his way? When they heard this, this is in Jerusalem, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Folks, it couldn't be any clearer. Peter's sermon designates Pentecost as as a very crucial point in human history, the, father, the Father's promise of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled. The new covenant has been granted to all Israel and the resurrection of the Christ, his resurrection, at, at the resurrection, he has assumed David's throne, his position as sovereign king over Israel. This is also a, a promise that we're going to see in our passage next week. Um, it's a promise for their 
for Israel and for their children and for as many as are far off, we're going to learn. Uh, so this, this is the final promise. There isn't anything else that Israel's waiting for. Nothing else in the future they're waiting for, for promise. Folks, we're almost done. But the idea that is printed in many of your study Bibles, that, that the house of Israel has not yet received the new covenant, nor the giving of the Holy Spirit, but that Israel is somehow waiting for Christ to return, and then they, they, ethnic Israel, the Jews, and then they're going to get a second chance at this? I'm going to be nice in how I describe that. That idea is completely erroneous. That is not what we see in Scripture when Christ describes His coming as being like a thief. The judgment is sudden and it is final when Christ returns. Read Second Thessalonians chapter 1 if you struggle with that. Um, I've said this before, and uh, back when we were studying First and Second Thessalonians, um, please don't ever tell a Jew, or, or anyone for that matter, that when Christ returns, you're going to get a second chance. Don't do that. Or, or that God is going to then, at that time, at some point in the future, fulfill a new covenant for ethnic Israel. Then, then give them a king. Uh, then they'll get the Holy Spirit. Folks, for ethnic Israel, that becomes a damning doctrine. They can't wait until Christ returns. And for 2,000 years, Jews have responded by faith. They have, as we have, enjoyed their Davidic king. Uh, they're being saved now as we are being saved. Uh, the good news was proclaimed to the Jews first at Pentecost, and then a little later on, the Greeks. Um, and it was a message of Pentecost like this. Our Messiah died, and doing so on the cross, He paid the penalty for all of our sins. He, he was both resurrected from the dead and he ascended into heaven on high. He's exalted at the right hand of God now. He grants the Holy Spirit to all, both Jew and Gentile, who are willing to receive him as both Lord and Christ. For Scripture assures in Romans 10 verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our Christ reigns. Let's pray.